Hey everyone, it's Charles Band in Los Angeles. I'm at the Full Moon Studios as I speak, and you're listening to me on Fractured Listens. What's going on? Welcome to Fractured Listens. I'm your host, Luke Bailey. This month, we're talking to B-movie mogul Charles Band. Producer, director, and now best-selling author, we're thrilled to welcome a trailblazer and the kin of low-budget filmmaking to the show. take me through your earliest experiences in education growing up through the social lens of Rome what would have been that time like for you as a growing period well I mean I was really blessed being almost like in a uh, time capsule Rome in the 60s um, was probably more like the United States in the 40s or 50s pretty innocent Uh, things eventually caught up but it, it was still a I felt, even though I mean, I was born in LA and I lived here for the first few years of my life. So I didn't know much about Los Angeles, but we did come back every so often. And, you know, I kind of saw what was going on back in, back in the States. But being in Italy at that time was, um, well, it was just a magical experience. I mean, my dad was making movies. So I grew up on a movie set. That was fascinating. And I really loved it and felt I needed to be part of that. But Rome was uh, Rome is still Rome. I mean, nothing's changed. There's not a cobblestone out of place. Uh, you know, things are a little different. But visually, uh, where I grew up, the streets are the same. The, obviously, the monuments are the same. Right. The 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 great cosmopolitan city is the same. You have people of all races and colors, and you know, it was a, an amazing melting pot. I mean, all roads do lead to Rome. So. Mm. I was very lucky in that, A, I had no exposure to U.S. television. Not that that's a bad thing or a good thing, but uh, there was really no TV on in Italy. So that's something you didn't spend your time doing. Uh, Great uh, music of the 60s, the Beatles, later on Pink Floyd. So overwhelmed by amazing music and a lot of Italian cinema, Fellini, Pasolini. So it was a really interesting, uh, you know, sort of a concoction of of um, influences that I was lucky to enjoy because I grew up as an American. I quickly learned how to speak Italian uh, in Rome, Italy. 14 years you were out in Rome. Am I right in saying that? That's 14 years of your life. That's a yeah, long well, time. I feel like I've, I've never left. I and mean, we came back, I think it was more like, um, see, I was four, maybe. Well, I, maybe that's right. I don't know. I was, we kind of lived there, maybe it's 15 or 16 years, but then I kept coming back. I, I had other ventures. I eventually bought the uh, Dino De Laurenti Studios. Um, I bought a castle. There was all sorts of Italian adventures. So I, I felt that I never left. I did form a base here in Los Angeles, but I think I've been back and forth easily a hundred times over these last uh, you know, 40 years or 45 years. 
You talk about the anything is possible attitude to being one of the things that shaped you the most growing up in Rome, in your book, of course. I was wondering if you could speak to any particular moments that led you to realize that in the beginning. Were there any entrepreneurial lessons as a young Charlie Brown growing up? <laughs> well, there's, you know, I wrote a book and I, I tried to spend some time letting people know, you know, what I did as a kid and sort of what I experienced. The book was published recently by HarperCollins. It's called Confessions of a Puppet Master. But, um, well, you know, it was a combination, again, of all these elements. I had this out-of-control entrepreneurial spirit. So all I wanted to do is, you know, create projects and make money to make movies to, you know, be this filmmaker, artist guy. Um, probably one of the things that, in a way gave me, um, other than my spirit, which I guess was baked into who I am, uh, as a very young kid, I, I several times almost lost my life in third world hospitals because of various problems with my stomach and a peritonitis. And so being literally on death's bed more than once as a young kid, um, it, it, it certainly made you appreciate what you know, what real problems are and, and, and so much of the drama and things that people get freaked out about today really is because of my experience, like almost meaningless. I mean, you know, there are tragic things that happen. There are, you know, near death experiences, but a lot of what, you know, over the years, my, my contemporaries, people that I know got super insanely upset about relative to near death, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not so much. So that kind of was part of it because you become, if you survive, you become fearless in a way because you, you, you know, whatever you're doing, if you're taking a risk as an entrepreneur, if, if, you know, if you're worried about failure, how bad can failure be? You pick yourself up and start again. So that was, that had a part of it. Um, but I was at a super early age, good at coming up, up with ideas and not just, you know, conjuring up ideas and writing them down in a notebook, but actually executing those ideas and uh, it's part of what allowed me to then go on and you know make money at a young age and start making movies so it's something that's been with you in your dna so to speak since the beginning since you were a kid it, it was but then i was very lucky to have a wonderful family i had a great father who uh, was very nurturing who encouraged me he was an artist he's the son of an artist a, a well-known painter sculptor so I, I, I had that spirit, but I was also lucky to have, uh, you know, a great uh, father, mother and, and, and a brother. So, you know, I, I, I know people who have somehow managed to become very successful and happy humans uh, in their lives. And they did not have the benefit of sort of the right parents or parents mm -hmm. who really knew how to raise children yeah. or who, who encouraged them. I mean, I've heard many stories of parents who did the opposite. You'll never amount to anything. You suck. You know, parents can be that way as well. And I think mainly because they never had good influences as they were kids growing up. But I was lucky to have, you know, a great father who, you know, loved the fact that I was interested in the process of movie making, had me on every one of the sets, had me apprentice uh, doing most jobs one can do on a movie set. Um, but then again, I did have the entrepreneurial spirit. Independent of that, I was shooting little movies. I, I put together screenings. I, I was always doing something to make some dollars. And then 
the thing that I, I guess most people know about me, if they knew me back in the day, is uh, twice in the period of the year at age 15, I, I opened, uh, for lack of a better description, nightclubs in downtown Rome. I had no permits, way underage. I thought, well, you know, if it was a private club and people were quiet, and it was only for students of the school. And of course, that became much more of a, than a private club because other people heard about it. They came, uh, you know, booze was brought in, lots of noise, <laughs> and eventually twice the police came and, you know, asked for all the obvious, including permits. And like, they finally said, well, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm 15. <laughs> it's like, that was the end of that. But that experience, which was from concept, I always say from concept to collection, which sounds pretty weird, but the experience of coming up with an idea, in this case, these clubs, uh, there were two clubs, one after the other, because when I got closed down on the first one, I thought I could find a more clever and more uh, obscure way to have a second club and avoid mistakes of the first that sort of got us caught, which of course I was not able to do. But you, you have an idea, you find the place, you make it look good, you bring in people, you sell memberships, <laughs> and you have opening night and people show up and you're in business. So the, the, the trajectory of an idea to the very end of that, which would be collecting money or you know, whatever it is that your idea results in, um, that, that's tricky because a lot of people have great ideas, but it's very hard for them to bring those ideas into uh, reality. Speaking of clubs, you've mentioned clubs, of course. Let's talk about one of the most foundational clubs for you back then, which would have been Moving Night, which was something that happened every Friday, where you would often see first-run features pre-release at a time when the foreign market was going through this crazy transitional moment back then. Can you share any recollections of experiencing Italian horror films for the first time and the impact they had on you? Yeah, well, it wasn't really Movie Night. We, we had... Um... You could on occasion see an American or English movie or a movie in English language at some of the revival houses if they were um, you know, classic films uh, and or because movies back then, 35 millimeter, were sent to Italy, American films to be dubbed, meaning to have the Italian voice, voices put in, those prints would usually find their way for a week or so to one of the small theaters in old Rome, older Rome, there's several, everything's old about Rome, but there's a section called Trastevere. And so all of a sudden, you know, you'd be able to see the Omen uh, in English, which was amazing. And that was sometimes before the movie came out in Italian at, at your local Italian cinema. So there was a combination of those movies. And then of course, great Italian films um, made by all the great Italian directors, including later on, Lucio Fulci and, you know, the, the horror films that people are familiar with. But, you know, I, I, any excuse to see any of those movies was a good one. And that was a big part of uh, what some of us did. If you think you are being followed home after seeing the bird with the crystal plumage, keep telling yourself it's all in your mind. In the Hitchcock tradition, the bird with the crystal plumage from UMC Pictures. You mentioned you're spending a lot of time on film sets with your dad, who was an acclaimed director of TV and film in his own right. What are your strongest memories from being on set and soaking up this magic and being dazzled by the filmmaking process around, you know, such a very well, true back then? You know, the, the memories sort of meld into my experiences. And, and of course, the main 
I would say the main thing was always the size of these productions. Now, my dad, much like me, uh, made smaller budget films. Occasionally, he would take me to a gargantuan set of a movie shooting in, um, in Italy, like Ben-Hur and the Bible, because he, you know, my dad worked with John Huston for many years. So whether he was friendly with the director making the big Hollywood movie or, uh, you know, or there was a, an actor he knew, I, on occasion, we went to these, these big production sets. But even in my dad's movies, and he, did, he didn't shoot them just in Italy. We went on location to Spain. We went on location to the former Yugoslavia. But it was always mind-boggling, the size of everything you know the lights the cameras these were also huge sets some of my father's movies were um epics you know with steve reeves you know hercules so huge sets were built and you know hundreds of sometimes thousands of warriors gladiators swordsmen so it was i mean big stuff now today the subject matter at least the movies i'm making you know much more contained much more character driven mm. Of course, the equipment now is, you know, featherweight, you know, the cameras are tiny, uh, lights are tiny, you know, you, you know, five, six people can literally, uh, you know, shoot a scene in, a, in, a, in an environment, uh, you know, whereas back in the day, that same scene would require 20 and would require lights, uh, lights that were, took sometimes two guys to grips to carry around. So everything was big, bigger than life, heavy lifting. And then my dad made several spaghetti westerns, and um, those also required sometimes 30, 40 horses. Western towns had to be built or rented. Uh, there was always three or four well-known, older by then, American actors who were stars back in the 40s and 50s. So it was sort of the size of it all that was, you know, always amazing to me. And then the process, because you know, I wouldn't really read the scripts. I would be more involved in, in the production side of it, but then I'd love the editing side of it. I'd love going into the editing room and again, on all 35 millimeter, big cans, mobiolas, and none of this stuff today with a little computer in your garage. So watching these movies get literally spliced together um, was also fascinating and taught me a lot. Uh, so yeah, the whole, the whole process was great. Incredible, incredible. So you eventually end up later on, of course, going back to Hollywood and starting this journey in the early 70s, your own personal yeah. journey. Who would have been some of those touchstone influences that made you want to pursue this career in filmmaking and make this first quote unquote real Charlie Band picture, Mansion of the Doomed? Well, you know, I, I kind of knew the, um, the process having grown up in the business. Um, I, I was in love with sci-fi fantasy and horror. So I knew the genre I wanted to make. Um, again, I, I was brand new. I was in my early 20s. Uh, and I got advice from several people who were independent filmmakers, in one case, a distributor. Now, keep in mind that back then, this is before anything that we know of today, you know, internet and streaming and yeah. video. And even today, a DVD or a VHS looks like an antique, whereas this is before any of that. So the only way your movie got released was theatrically. Um, and we making B movies, uh, they were the B side of a double bill, the double bill being the big studio A movie, and then the much, much smaller B movie, if you were lucky to get into the theaters. 
So, so that was the world. And I knew I was going to be making B movies. I, I, I had no aspiration to knock on studio doors for years and try to wiggle into mainstream movie making. So, you know, I, I managed because again, of a business I invented that made some money, nothing to do with show business, but although everything's show business, I think, but, and I managed to put the money together and I'm, I'm now making a, a mansion of the doom. Now I have to say, and, and for those who've read the book and who know more about my career, I did have a detour in the beginning. I was convinced by a friend of mine at the time not to make a horror movie, which is all I wanted to do. That's right. But, but to make a, um, a burlesque sort of satire. Uh, and I made it. It was called The Last Tango in Burbank, much to my regret. And it was a, uh, you know, a send off of a movie that came out at the time called The Last Tango in Paris with Marlon Brando. So that I, I don't want to spend too much time of it. It was a terrible detour. It was a terrible movie. It's not what I wanted to do. I just got in, caught up in, you know, someone else's vision. And I got, and I, I love the guy. It was a writer named Frank Ray Pirelli, who was involved with writing some of my early movies. So other than the detour, which almost put me out of business, it was finally time to make my first horror movie. And I was very lucky to, you know, find, uh, I always invented my own material, but, you know, I had quite a team at the time. I was, began a many, many decade relationship with Stan Winston, who became one of the most well-known special effects artists, uh, Terminator and Jurassic Park and you know Aliens and anyway, so Stan was my effects guy. Andy Davis, Andrew Davis was my director of photography. Andy later started directing big Hollywood films like The Fugitive and others. It was Gloria Graham was in the movie, who was older and well-known. It was Lance Hendrickson's first film, and the star was Richard Basehart. So, oh wait, did I get this mixed up? Richard Basehart. Yes. No. Yes. Richard Basehart. Anyway, there, there's so many movies. Sometimes I get it. <laughs> of course. Of course. Entangled. Anyway, it was a really terrific experience. And for the next four or five movies, you know, the movies, the first movies I made, they went out theatrically through various distributors who uh, I quickly learned will never give you a penny beyond the advance. You know, all the promises of money and fame and fortune, none of that came to pass. Uh, I barely had enough money to kind of pay bills and then try to make my next movie. So some years later, I finally decided, okay, I, if I'm going to be prolific and survive in this business. I have to do my own distribution. I can't just make these movies and give them to someone and hope for the best. But that's kind of how it all began. Which kind of takes us to Crash. That's, that's, I suppose it's your first, it's, your, it's certainly your first directorial film, which right. I, I guess would have been a Crash Marathon almost disguised as a horror of sorts. It featured Sue Leon and a cameo right. from John Carradine. What can you tell right. me about that directorial debut? Well, again, I, I, I didn't, my aspirations, yes, I wanted to make good movies, but I wanted to make commercial movies. Um, I didn't want to make a film that was too esoteric and people would wonder. I, I, that was not what I wanted. I was getting some pretty good advice at the time by some of the, the, the theater owners and again, the distributor guy who, wound up you know making all the money but and the advice was as i was heading out of mansion is hey i mean it was pretty simply said if you can make a, a movie with car crashes because everyone wants to see that was the era where where lots of crashes on screen equaled some kind of box office yeah make a car crash movie now i didn't want to just make a gone in 60 seconds i didn't want to make just a straight up sort of car crash film so i wove in a story that brought in horror and sort of possession and weirdness. I mean, the story is somewhat incomprehensible. Now that I look, looked at it recently, I thought, oh my God, that is 
It doesn't quite make sense, but it doesn't matter. It was a fun show. It was a possessed car, which was not easy to create. This is way before CGI. So when you see that car careening down streets and causing accidents, you know, know that there were no trickery. We created a car where the driver, the stunt driver was buried somewhere in and underneath the car practically because it was a convertible to boot. So there's no way to hide him uh, other than to build a car where he's sort of laid flat somewhere out of sight. So it was thinking back pretty dangerous. Luckily we had no, no problems. And we made this movie with Jose Ferrer and Stu Lyon. And it was a, it did very, very well, but it definitely had a demonic horror spin to it. And I enjoyed directing. It was my the first movie I directed. We're talking about a boots on the ground experience for you, as you're saying. It was the first of a kind experience for you back then, working with somebody like Freefinger Harry, who you describe in his book as a 60-something former stuntman and daredevil. Can you remember any stories about Crash that aren't mentioned in this memoir? Yeah, there's, <laughs> you know, the premise was this car, for reasons that are too complicated, to even understand, but it's, it goes from point A to Z. And because of that, because of police cars chasing it, there's all sorts of mayhem. So there were six or seven scenes where because of the possessed car and the bad guys and the cops, you know, various explosions and accidents occurred. Um, and everyone was, was, you know, pretty well staged. And yes, we had a guy named Von Deming and his son, they were amazing. And then Three Finger Harry was the, our pyro guy who, of course, being a young director and very ambitious, I would always say, you know, Harry, we're going to do this and make a huge explosion. And I would say, well, how, you know, and he would say, you know, how big do you want it? And I go, well, like an, like Hiroshima, make it fucking up huge, <laughs> which was a mistake because he, he, he did that. And, and sometimes we, we blew up more than we should have. And of course, that's why his, his nickname is Three Finger Harry, because he, blew some of his fingers off in prior, not in my movie, but in prior jobs. But the two things that come to mind, well, one in particular is we, um, it's terrible to admit this, we, we had a scene where the car zooms through this gas station. There's several cars parked in the station, cars flip, the gas station blows up and one of the cars drives off and crashes into, I forget what. Anyway, you know, when you do these shows, you only have one chance there's no retake there's no oh let's do it again you know especially on a low budget so whatever you get you get but we had multiple cameras which was the only way you could do these things and they were all going super high speed because we were shooting in 35 slow motion because the longer you could draw out these crashes the better crashes and explosions and more crashes and repeat the explosion and right. you know almost to a point where oh my god we're seeing the same scene for five minutes and probably in, in in real time, it probably would have lasted 30 seconds. That was part of the art of showing these endless explosions. Anyway, whatever happened is, you know, we, we sort of built the gas station. There was a structure there, but the rest of it was sort of built as a faux set. And of course, Three Finger Harry did his job and <clears throat> there were endless mushrooms of fire and smoke, but something went wrong. And the, the, one of the cars that was supposed to blow up, I guess, didn't blow up and careened through the, um, the gas station and went across into another part of that area and smashed someone's brick wall and kind of ended in someone's front yard having smashed the wall. So, you know, um, we, we left our phone number. I mean, I was the director, the production manager. I said, Hey, 
you know, um, we got to leave a number. It, it was, I forget, it was on a weekend. No one was around. Uh, and we thought, well, okay, we're going to have to repair someone's brick wall. And, you know, they came, you, you have people hauling away all the debris. It was always a, a, a problem. And then, you know, a few days later, I was, you know, worried. I thought, oh my God, this is going to be the worst call ever. Because uh, we had a little production office. There was only two people in the office. And the call never came through. And finally, I asked the guy, I said, um, well, what, isn't it weird that we destroy someone's wall? And I, I said, did you, did you give him the right number? And he kind of looked at me like, probably not. So uh, <laughs> anyway, if, if that person is listening, it's been about 50 years. I'm sorry. <laughs> love that. Love that. What a story. So fast forward and laser blast becomes this other magical moment for you that comes from your years of loving sci-fi and effects as right. a kid. Uh-huh. I mean, how does how does Laser Blast come about? Well, it, again, a very simple story. Um, and I was that was the beginning of a long relationship with Dave Allen. Um, but I, I thought it would be cool to have a, um, I mean, again, in telling it, and probably when you if you watch it, as cool as it is, especially from the, from a movie made back in the 70s, um, late 70s, it, it, the premise is pretty silly. So these aliens, these really smart aliens are in the desert and I forget exactly why they get, um, they have to leave very quickly and uh, they carelessly leave their, their, uh, their alien laser blast weapon on the floor, on the, on the desert, uh, yeah, in the desert. And they leave and then we have our, our hero, uh, this, this kid, who we established early on is getting pushed around. He's being bullied. So you kind of establish these characters in school who all give him a hard time. Anyway, he conveniently finds the alien space gun, the laser blast gun, figures out how to use it. And then of course, it's a revenge story. He goes back and blows up everybody who did him harm. But during that period, I mean, he has a girlfriend and he's, she's trying to keep him sane and, and he loves her, but then he becomes the alien and then he blows up more enemies but now we keep cutting back to these little lizard alien guys in their spaceship all stop motion animation mm. and it's just looking at it i looked at it recently because we made a, a you know a, a blu-ray uh, version finally we got an hd master we're doing that on a lot of our older movies nice. now the aliens literally in gibberish talk to each other and then they do a replay and they realize that they left the laser gun and now they they turn around you literally see their spaceship sort of turn around and it was going left to right. Now it's going right to left, going back to earth. And at the end of the movie, they it's a big confrontation. By now, the guy's possessed as a kind of an alien character. They get the gun back. There's explosions. There's tears. But it was a it's a fun movie, which you know, made today with the big budget would be, I think, a big success. And uh, so it was it was a, the greatest part of it was meeting Dave Allen because I needed someone to do the stop motion animation. And, you know, he did it and we, we worked on many, many movies, uh, you know, for many years thereafter. What was it about the 70s? What, what, do you, what is it that sticks out to you most about making films in the 70s that turned you on creatively? Well, you know, the, the tools are very primitive, but very organic. Um, today, you know, the world is vastly different. For a few thousand dollars, you can have all the gear you want and go out and you can make yourself a movie. It may not be very good if you don't have either the talent or, you know, the right people or the right actors. I mean, you know, there's a, 
this is a making a film is not about one person. This is a, a lot of people who need to yeah. conspire together, do a good job, and it starts with a good script. And you know, it's it's a complicated affair. Um, but it, but but today you can do this because of the technology, unbelievably inexpensively. Back then. Um, even a low-budget mo movie had a had a floor, had a hard cost. You had to buy film. You couldn't get it for free. You had to rent gear. The gear was very expensive. You had to process the film in a lab. Uh, the, the whole process was many, many, many tens of thousands of dollars. Now, everyone, you could get all your friends to work for free and all the actors to work for free, but the hard cost, the price of admission, so to speak, to making a low-budget movie was... was um, was, was, was a bunch of money, you know, back mm -hmm. then. Uh, so it was all of that, uh, much smaller playing field. Um, and then, you know, to get money, you had to convince investors or people that you had the, uh, the training, the ability to do it. You know, uh, you had to have some experience. Uh, you know, I always look for people who work with actors, who work in theater, who, who know how to talk to actors. You know, you being technically proficient and knowing how to work a, a digital camera to me means almost nothing. You know, it's, it's, it's about the story you tell and the actors you hire. I mean, that's what people watch. Um, but anyway, back then, because of the process to answer your question, uh, it was a very organic experience. I mean, film was something you touched and held up to the light. You could see the images through the film. Uh, there wasn't anything that you didn't, touch, see, or feel. Today, you know, we, we, you push a button and it's being recorded in some magic little box and you can go on your computer and push more buttons. And I mean, at the end, you're, you're still putting a movie together, but the main difference is it, it was for me and I'm sure for many, it was a very organic experience back in the seventies making movies on 35. This could all be happening right now, somewhere on this planet. It's the story of a UFO that has landed, and visitors from a galaxy light years away. It's an adventure unlike anything on this planet. might belong to us in the future, but is here now. Laser Blast. It's the story of the boy who found it and the girl who tried to help him. What about the lump on your chest? And a world that tried to take it away. They didn't know I knew it. I want the town sealed off. No news leaks. No news, period. Laser blast. It will blow your mind. And if we're moving away from the 70s and into the early 80s, you did experience a different format, of course, with making Parasite in 3D. It was your right. first directorial right. feature of that decade in a right. completely different format. What, what can you tell me about uh, using that format for Parasite? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of 3D. 
when 3D became 10, 15 years ago, kind of a thing. Yeah. And big $100, $200 million movies were made in 3D. I thought it was, you know, 3D, yes, it's very interesting for five or 10 minutes. It's sort of a window. But then it becomes, it kind of mushes in your brain. To me, 3D was a gimmick. It was something you watched. Then if the filmmaker was clever, they'd be poking things at you. They'd make you jump out of your seat. To me, 3D is a gimmick. It's not necessarily a window to see this amazing uh, three-dimensional landscape. And, you know, a huge amount of money recently, relatively recently, were put into these movies. Now, of course, that's all gone. You don't see big 3D, you know, tentpole Hollywood movies anymore, but you did for a while. But back in the late 70s and 80, whatever, I was a fan of the, the, you know, the 3D movies that were like Wanna Devil. I mean, movies that were fun. They were gimmicky. I was making exploitation horror movies. I thought, well, let me make something where it's kind of a cool idea. And then some really gross things pop out at you, make you jump out of your seat. That was basically the impetus for Parasite, which was exactly that kind of movie. We were lucky to have, again, Stan Winston did my effects, Stan, the most amazing effects guy. We had, it was to me, Moore's first film. That was a thrill working with her. So, you know, there was all of that, but it did well. It went out, did well. And then shortly thereafter, um, you know, Universal uh, was making uh, Jaws 3 in 3D. That's right. And I got lucky because I was making my second 3D movie called Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin. And I'm, as I'm making this movie, the guy who was running Universal at the time, who I, I knew, uh, I knew, basically heard that I was making a 3D movie and he called me. I was literally shooting this film. I was on set. And he said, you know, we're spending a lot of money equipping a thousand of theaters with the silver screen, with all the accoutrements to play Jaws 3D. And if your movie's any good, um, I'd like to license it or buy it so that right after Jaws, we can put your movie in, Metal Storm, into the same theaters because we'll get some more value for the investment of all the technical stuff. So luckily, the movie turned out well. They saw, he saw, a guy named Robert, Robert Ramey, saw material from the movie, thought it looked great. And we made a really, really wonderful, lucrative deal. <laughs> and that, amongst a few other things at the time, helped fund uh, the Empire. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, we started in the 80s with uh, a really good run of these movies under the Empire Entertainment banner. It kind of becomes this catalyst, doesn't it, for Empire being formed in the beginning in the 80s. Yeah. One of the films I think about back then with Empire is the fact that Ghoulies was initially, of course, to be shot half in 3D. I often think about that. What could it have been? Yeah, well, um, we shot some of it in 3D. We got maybe two days into our schedule. Uh, it was really clever. If you ever see the movie, you, you, you um, there's a scene at the dinner table with the kids and they put their glasses on. My whole idea was uh, there would be a, a, a card uh, that would come up before the movie began in the theater. And I, I'm, I know I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what the cue was, but something to do with putting the glasses on. So when you put, when the, when the protagonist, when the people, in the, when the actors put their glasses on, you, that was your cue as an audience member to put your glasses on. And then that section would be in 3D. So we had sections of the movie that were written for 3D effect, ghoulies, again, jumping out at you. It was really clever and I thought it was gonna be great. And, um, but a, day, a couple of days into this uh, shoot, 
because it was the first movie that we were going to distribute. It was my first theatrical release after being sort of screwed for years, you know, naively giving my movies to other distributors. I was in touch now with some of the theater chains and they said, you know, uh, it, it's not worth it. It's too expensive. Uh, plus there's a, a technical problem where if part of the movie is not 3D and you're not supposed to have your glasses on and then you put the glasses on, you know, there could be an issue with switching the lenses. Anyway, I got word very quickly that it was unwieldy to do this and use this as a gimmick. So we stopped shooting the 3D material by day two. But but the premise is still there. So again, if if you if you we stopped also having them put the glasses on. But I think there's at least one right. dinner scene where all of a sudden five, six people at dinner put their glasses on. And if you know nothing about the story, you probably wonder why are these guys all putting their sunglasses on at night. Jonathan is having a housewarming party. Whoa! What do you guys want to do? Well, we could play hide and go seek. <laughs> yeah. What about trivial pursuit? Yeah. yeah. It's a trip. Poker. Yeah. <laughs> I got an idea. Let's do a ritual. Yod hey, bow hey. Yod hey, bow hey. You do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself. Hey, knock it off. No, wait, I, I need to dismiss the spirit. So do I. Where's the bathroom? Upstairs. <laughs> Unfortunately, there will be some surprise guests. <laughs> they have very bad manners. And they have no respect for privacy. They'll wake up the neighbors. <laughs> What the hell's in there? And they never take no for an answer. Oh, man, that chick is really a screamer. <laughs> Ghouls, once they show up, you can never get rid of them. <laughs> Ghoulies, they'll get you in the end. Do you have a favorite moment making Ghoulies? Um, well, it was also very successful uh, theatrically. Yeah. The, the Ghoulies revenue along with uh, Metal Storm together really helped uh, fund Empire. Well, my favorite story, of course, is about the marketing because unless you have a title and you know how you're going to sell your project, then you may as well not make it. Uh, I, I've had friends through decades make pretty credible movies, but not have a good title, not sure how they're going to sell it. And many times um, that's the failing of the, of the movie. These are low budget movies. They don't have big stars and you need to have a hook. You need to have a title. You need to have something that pulls people in. If your movie has a terrible title, but it's starring Brad Pitt, you're going to have some box office because he's a star. So we didn't have uh, that luxury. And, um, uh, you know, you had to kind of come up with something clever. So in the case of Ghoulies, um, I, 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 sadly, he's passed away. My closest friend who was a filmmaker and a marketing guy, 
he was his name was Gary Allen, and he was famous for a campaign he did for a Warner's movie called It's Alive. Mm. It's Alive was a few years before Ghoulies, I guess late 70s. And they had released it under a different name. Warner's felt there was value in the movie. They wanted to re-release it. And they went to my friend Gary, because he was already known as a kind of a wizard marketing guy. And they said, we need a, you to help create a really good campaign for new campaign for It's Alive. So what he came up with for anybody who's seen the movie or knows what I'm talking about, um, the poster is a poster of this kind of it's baby carriage, kind of a you know macabre looking baby carriage. Yeah. And there's a claw coming out of it. And then you have, I forget the copy. Oh yeah, the copy line was something like, there's nothing wrong with the Smith baby except it's alive. But what really did it is he created a trailer, uh, a teaser trailer for the movie theaters. And what happens, you, you see the, the baby carriage. You don't know anything is wrong. It's a little creepy. The camera moves around the carriage and you hear the voice, of course, one of those deep baritone voices saying, there's nothing wrong with the Smith baby except, and right when he says except, the claw comes out, it's alive. Anyway, because of my friend's campaign, that movie went out and out and made a bunch of money. It was a very clever campaign. So Ghoulies was my first movie that we, we released that I was going to release theatrically. And I needed something equally as clever. So I went over to his house to brainstorm. And he was already smoking some weed. I'm not a weed smoker, but he was, you know, puffing away. And he said, I have a great idea. He said, I have an idea that's going to fucking sell your movie. It's going to be awesome. I go, what is it? He said, well, the poster is one of your little goobers, one of your ghoulies popping out of a toilet. And the copy line is, they'll eat your ass. And I said, Gary, you are absurdly high. There's, there's, there's no way. First, there's no way that's going to work. There's no way any newspaper is going to print that as an ad. So we got comfortable and started talking ideas. And what stuck with me was the visual, not the copy line, the visual of a nasty ghoulie coming out of a toilet. I thought, well, you know, no one's ever seen that before. That's actually pretty cool. So eventually we came up with the copy line, they'll get you in the end. A little more poetic, a little less absurd. And uh, anyway, so now I had a poster with a ghoulie coming out of a toilet and the copy line, they'll get you in the end. And the movie was now, we finished shooting. The movie was already done. And I was going to sell it with that poster. And I realized that if I don't have at least one scene in this movie that has a ghoulie popping out of a toilet, some people will be upset. So we ran back, shot the scene, uh, ghoulie popping out of the toilet, put it as part of one of the moments in the movie, a montage of madness. And then, of course, I had to get the thing approved which was very difficult because it was really edgy and we wanted to get it approved to be able to run these ads, TV ads everywhere. Got very lucky. We got the approval. We released it in New York. It was the first city. We had a hundred prints. It was very expensive. For me, it was a big uh, shot in the dark, uh, so to speak. It was my first foray into distribution of my own movie. Anyway, the I had a local distributor handling the, uh, an exhibitor rather, handling the bookings and the theater, the prints and the things. And he, anyway, he's the guy I was in touch with. So it was Friday night um, and I, I, Friday night, New York time, I'm in LA. He said, call me around seven o'clock your time. I'll give you a good idea of how this movie is gonna open, how it did. We'll have by then some screenings. Anyway, I called him, he was a, he's very excited. He said, oh my God, you have a huge hit 
People are lined up for this thing. It's fucking amazing. I think you're going to do great. Call me Monday and I'll give you an idea of what the, what the gross is going to be, what the numbers are going to be. So now I have like the best weekend ever. I'm making grandiose plans. I'm going to make a hundred movies. So I call him Monday and he says, Charlie he says, I got some good news and some bad news and you've got a decision to make. And I go, what, what? I, I thought it was doing well. He said, it did great. You grossed over a million dollars over the weekend. You're going to do great. You can take these prints and move them across the country. The only problem is you're getting a lot of complaints from parents because kids are seeing these TV ads and they're not going to the bathroom anymore. You know, you've just made the, all their potty trading go up the, in smoke here. They're scared to death because there's a fucking ghoulie coming out of a toilet. <laughs> so, I, so I go, oh shit, what do I do? He said, well, he said, the problem is that this may be the, the reason why your movie is so successful that campaign and that ghoulie coming out of the toilet. Now you could switch it up, create a piece of new art. Um, maybe the ghoulie's peeking around a corner, maybe the ghoulie's coming out of a, a drawer, but that may kill the golden goose. You may find that people couldn't care less. They are attracted to the ghoulie coming out of the toilet. I said, well, what's my alternative? He says, your alternative, you don't do anything. People will be pissed off, fuck it. So I chose the, the fuck it alternative. And um, the movie was a big success. But of course, the, the, the irony is many years later, as I go to conventions and I took a little show on the road, I'm now meeting 25, 30 year old, 30 year old men and women who are saying, oh my God, I love this movie. But as a little kid, you scared the shit out of me. You're not out of me. So they were, I've had hundreds of people say, I was one of those kids. I couldn't go to the bathroom for weeks. It was terrible. My parents wanted to kill you. Incredible. And it didn't slow you down. Of course, it empowered you to keep making movies, keep yeah. shooting them out. Well, I didn't want to, I didn't want to destroy, you know, <laughs> the hard work of parents and all the potty training. So it's not like I, <laughs> I tried to uh, replicate that, but it, it's a true story. And we did go with that campaign. And now it's considered one of the sort of B-movie classic posters. I, I still see them everywhere. So uh, yeah, no, then the 80s became a very prolific period, made all sorts of movies and Troll and Reanimator and sequels to Ghoulies and Eliminators and, and that got us into the 90s and you know I was had a great deal with Paramount we were making a movie every month that's when we started making all the Full Moon movies uh, Puppet Master and Subspecies and Trancers and yeah it's just and the, the medium changes of course the world changes uh, but at the end you know people like a good little thriller a good horror movie something that takes them out of their the, their daily routine. Once upon a time when the world was filled with wonder, little creatures shared the earth with humans, and magic was a way of life. Once Upon a Time is now. Empire Pictures presents Troll. The weirdest, the rowdiest, the most mischievous, and the scariest little creature of them all. I think that what he's doing is going from apartment to apartment and transforming sections of this building into different fairy worlds. Hey. Uh, 
The transformation is going to begin on the Witch's Sabbath, the very same day that the Potters move into their new apartment. I've never seen so many guys take so long to move so little furniture. It's all your records, honey. You've got to get rid of some of these records. Sometimes I wonder what I'm going to do. No, there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. What the Potters don't know is that they've just moved into the building that is the enchanted gateway to the ancient world of Troll. Shut that damn door! Oh. Wendy! Didn't you hear Mommy calling you, honey? No, Mommy. It's dead! Harry Jr. is about to be drawn into a world beyond his wildest fantasy, and he'll need a little magic of his own to get out of it alive. Jr. expected to have a little trouble getting adjusted in his new neighborhood. But he never expected anything like this. Troll, where myths and legends come to life. Well, it's you got to keep busy. I, I enjoy and Look, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, I feel like I'm just figuring it out. You know, there's always a sense of discovery and wonder. Uh, everything changes. I mean, at the end, the, the, the program, the movie, the little piece of entertainment, I call them shows because movies, I don't like Sometimes I, don't, I can't even use that word anymore. There, there, are, there are little shows and these shows are uh, essentially the same. You know, that, they haven't changed. You know, you still need a clever idea. You still need a monster, a creature. You need, you need these elements to entertain people if they're going to rent or buy or, or view a horror movie or a science fiction movie. Uh, but the medium's changed. Absolutely. Is, with that being said, with the medium changing, is there a specific movie that you think best defines Charles Band and a movie of yours in the beginning that put you in that middle space of trying to find out where you exist creatively? Well, you know, the, the movie that we just started shooting, which is our 12th Puppet Master movie, we started shooting on Monday at, at a location nice. in Cleveland. I was just there. I got back here yesterday. That's my 363rd movie. So, wow. you know, when you make that many movies, they're almost like your kids. You don't want to single out. <laughs> oh, the, the best movie is whatever. I mean, there, there are a lot that I'm fond of. I would say the three that probably best exemplify i think what full moon is good at what we've become pretty good at is and they're very they're very different there's um i made a movie called trancers it was helen hump's first movie it's a sci-fi film i think it's a good representation of a clever script it was well executed it was a small budget but i think it stands the test of time tim thomerson helen hunt we made some sequels and then i made a really bizarro movie called head of the family which is one of my favorites that that is sort of the elixir, elixir of, I think, what a small, clever, character-driven horror movie um, can, can deliver. It, it's, it, it will always be fun to watch. It's timeless. Uh, it's, it's 
funny. It's not really gross. I just think they're great characters and it's a clever plot. And I'm proud. I mean, that, there's probably 10 others like that that I could talk right. about. Like, I mean, another movie called Hideous, but I would say Head of the Family, Transfers. And then I, I, I man, I don't know. <laughs> there's so many. Probably uh, from beyond in terms of a, a straight up sort of Lovecraft adaptation. That's probably my favorite film that I made with Stuart Gordon, Jeffrey Combs, Barbara Crampton. And last but not least, I would say Puppet Master, just because it was original and fresh and, and, and it's talk about standing the test of time. We are making our 12th puppet master. It's embedded a bit in the, um, in the, in the consciousness of people who grew up watching these movies, renting them originally at their local video store. And it's yeah. created some, you know, 32 years of, uh, <laughs> of puppet master movies. Now there are plenty more. I don't want to leave other ones out, but those are the three or four that I would, uh, and it's good timing because I'm, literally minutes away from a call but uh, you know i, I want to end by saying you know i'm doing um i'm doing what's essentially a podcast but it's on our streaming site and i'm really proud of it it's called charles band's full moon freak show and i just started a few months ago and of course it's wherever you get your pods it's a podcast but what i like is that i'm shooting it with three cameras against the green screen and my guests are I mean, everyone I've, I've asked so far to do it have come on board. I've had the most amazing guests. I mean, John Carpenter was my first guest since I gave him nice. his first gig back in the 70s. And we've had everyone from Barbara Crampton and Bill Mosley. And I got uh, John Waters coming next week. But last week, um, I had the honor of spending an hour with Roger Corman. And, and apropos wow. everything we're talking about, here's a guy who makes me look like a kid. Uh, Roger came in, you know, I thought... Okay, I'm going to um, start in the beginning. Uh, I, I want to cover ground. The guys work with everyone, the most famous directors, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson, Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola was his assistant. So I figured somehow in the hour that I was allotted, I need to cover some of this ground and try to get through his, you know, almost 65, 60, almost 70 years of filmmaking. And, so you know, he was in amazing shape. The guy's 96. He walked in here. He had a cane. He was great. And we started talking and his memory is beyond belief. And as quickly as I moved through, um, you know, the, the years and the decades, by the end of the hour, we hit 1980. And that wow. was it. You know, I mean, it was enough. And, and he, he couldn't have been more gracious. I said, Roger, do me a favor. In a few years from now, if you're in the mood, maybe when you hit 100, come back. And let's go from 1980, 42 more years to 2022, because we barely covered half of his career. So I feel, I feel we're ending this on the same note, Luke. We are. We're in the early 90s. That's kind of where we're leaving it off. Well, maybe we can do a part two and revise this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But things are good. And, you know, we have a, there's no video stores anymore. But if people go to fullmoonstreaming.com, that's our that's our streaming site. You know, it's chock full of amazing movies, not just my movies, but we license a lot of films from other wonderful filmmakers. So, you know, I don't know, we have probably a thousand movies up there and new movies every week. And it's, uh, it's the new video store. It's the only way that we can, yes, we can, we always eventually release things on DVD and Blu-ray, but that's hard to get. You don't need to spend 30, $40 and necessarily buy a, a Blu-ray and ship it across the uh, ocean. Because the streaming side for you know six ninety nine a month, 
uh, you know, we, we just, you can see everything and it looks great. So I'm really proud of it. We're doing a lot of things on the streaming site uh, that most people can't do, uh, including of course the freak show. Uh, but we have new things coming up that will be, I think, fun for the fans. There it is. Charles Bound, I want to say thank you for joining us on this episode and spending as much time as you have with us today. A pleasure. Thank you very much and good luck, Luke. Hi, I'm Charles Band and responsible for tons of Empire and Full Moon movies you probably rented at your local video store over the years. And I'm sure some of them freaked you out as a kid. Movies like Ghoulies, Reanimator, Troll, and the Puppet Master series, and more recently, Evil Bong with Tommy Chong, and The Ginger Dead Man, starring Gary Busey as a crazy, pissed-off cookie. Well, the bummer is your local video store is long gone, and so is Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, Tower. There are basically no more video rental stores left in this country. And that's why we created Full Moon Streaming. It's pretty much like Netflix, except we carry all the cool films that Netflix just isn't carrying anymore. Plus, you can get us through Apple AirPlay, on the Roku box, soon Sony PlayStation, Xbox, and it's not just full moon films. We have the Moonbeam label, sci-fi fantasy films for kids, the Wizard Studios label, which premieres new films from amazing filmmakers, and of course, the Grindhouse Films label, where we have hundreds of unbelievably awesome and rare Grindhouse films. Plus, recently, we just licensed all the Blue Underground movies. Films like uh, Tombs of the Blind Dead and all sorts of other crazy stuff. And there's Full Moon. Hundreds of iconic films made over the years. New ones coming up every day. Films that launched the careers of uh, stars like Demi Moore and Helen Hunt and Viggo Mortensen. Plus all the new movies we're making, all the new series, everything's premiering on this site. I mean, this is like having a whole video store in front of your eyeballs. So here's the deal. Simply go to fullmoonstreaming.com and subscribe. It's like six bucks a month. Subscribe to fullmoonstreaming.com. It's like Netflix for lunatics.